0: Well, I'd ask you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking in particular at verses 6 to 8 this morning, but we're going to read to set the broader context, verses 4 to 10. When you have 1 Peter chapter 2, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word as we read this together. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I will read verses 4 to 10, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word they were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Well, as you look at this passage. And one of the things we'd encourage you to do each week, by the way, when you get the midweek update is we tell you what passage we're going to be studying as you read ahead each week and kind of be meditating on the passage that we're going to be studying each Sunday morning. We just encourage you to do that. You'll see in this passage, I trust if you've read it, you have seen that this is a passage that's focused on honor and the sense of honor and shame as well. And it's been observed that America is quickly becoming a shame culture whereas we used to be a guilt culture. Well, what do I mean by guilt culture? Well, in a guilt culture, people think in in terms of right and wrong, true and false, guilty and not guilty. So in a guilt culture, reason and truth and argumentation are very important. We want to think through what we believe and why we believe what we believe, because we want to be able to demonstrate through rational argument that we are correct in our position. And many of us still think this way, but The younger generation in America is really growing up in a shame culture. And that's quite different. In a shame culture, they're taught that they must hold the culturally approved position on the pressing moral issues or political issues of the day, or they're a bad person. They're a shameful person. In a shame culture, the focus really isn't on being right or wrong. In a shame culture, the focus is on holding the culturally approved position, and that that's what's necessary. Well, this is what's behind the cancel culture that you see on social media, which says you have to hold the culturally approved position, and if you do not hold the culturally approved position, well, then you're not, you're not uh, worthy to have a public voice. You're a shameful person, And so you should be silent. It's why one LGBTQ activist at a recent Loudoun County School Board meeting accused Christians of being hateful, because they were concerned that the school board was hastily adopting transgender bathroom policies that would impact their children. And the activist reportedly said, this hate, hate is dripping from the followers of Jesus in this room. Now, in saying that, the activist wasn't trying to answer the the reasoned arguments of the parents for why they were concerned about these policies. The activist was simply trying to shame them for not holding the culturally approved view. And so much of the public discourse in our day has devolved into little more than a public scolding. You either hold the right position or you're shameful. And you should be silenced because you are narrow and you're bigoted and you are hate-filled And so reason and logic are out, and now ad hominem attacks are in. And that's the currency of the day. You don't worry about the arguments. You just attack the person, and you declare that the person is a shameful person, someone who should not be able to speak or hold an opinion. That's what you see throughout our culture. And as our culture grows darker... Uh, it's likely that the public shaming of Christians in particular is going to increase. We just need to be honest about that. It seems to be the trajectory where we're going as a culture. There's going to be more and more of this kind of public scolding, public shaming, and silencing that's happened. And this is, for many of us, a new experience in our country. Within our own lifetime, we can remember a time when it was thought to be honorable and good to actually have a reason to believe what you believed. But things are changing. Now... For many Christians, we find ourselves facing a form of persecution that we have not faced heretofore, but we need to remember that while this is new for us, this is not new for our brothers and sisters around the world who've been enduring persecutions throughout their entire lives. Nothing new about this. Satan has always used mocking and shaming in order to cow Christians either into compromise or silence, and they'll take either. They'll take compromise or they'll take silence, and that's the effort, that's the goal This actually, and this is what I love about God's Word, it's so relevant in every generation because, again, there's nothing new under the sun. As we look at 1 Peter, this is precisely what these brothers and sisters were facing in the first century. You see, they were being shamed, they were being mocked, they were being scolded for holding to a biblical sexual morality in particular. Uh, They were being mocked and abused for that verbally, and the time would come when they would suffer more than just verbal, they would suffer physically, But why were they suffering? It's just because they held to a biblical morality. So they were told that they should be ashamed. But our passage this morning tells us that Christians have no reason to be ashamed for following Jesus. There's no cause for shame for us. Actually, our passage teaches us that Christians will one day be honored by God for their faith in Jesus, while those who have rejected Jesus will face eternal Shame. Christians are told by our surrounding culture that we're on the wrong side of history, but the Bible teaches us, this passage in particular teaches us, that actually at the end of the day, when we stand before God, we will be shown to be the ones who are on the right side of history after all. That's what we see as we study this passage. So we're looking at 1 Peter. Last week we looked at verses 4 and 5. We learned about our identity as Christians. Again, it's one of the things I love about this book is it's so clear on who we are as followers of Jesus, what our identity is so that we can live in light of who we are by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we can be who we are, live like who we truly are in Christ. And we saw last week that we have become a spiritual house, and the idea is that we've become a temple So in the Old Testament, there was this physical structure, God dwelt among the people, but that ultimately was just a picture of what God was truly building, and what he was truly building was a a temple, but a temple that was composed of spiritual stones, of living stones, of you and I, joined together as the people of God, God dwelling among his people for all eternity. And we saw that we were also a holy priesthood to the Lord, given the task of, of offering sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices to our God. And we thought together about what the practical implications of that should be for the way that we live. Well, this morning we're looking at verses 6 to 8, and here Peter is continuing to teach his readers about who they are, and he's also strengthening the arguments he made uh, in verses 4 and 5, showing them how those arguments had been taught before in the Old Testament, pointing back to God's authoritative word for what he was teaching seeking to demonstrate to them that believers are those who will be honored by God, while those who reject Christ will stumble and will face God's judgment for their rejection of Christ. We're going to study this passage using two points, two points from verses 6 to 8. The first point, those who trust in Jesus will be honored by God. Those who trust in Jesus will be honored by God. You'll see that in verse 6 through the first part of verse 7. And then second, those who reject Jesus will face God's judgment. Those who reject Jesus will face God's judgment. You'll see that in the second part of verse 7 and verse 8. Let's look at the first point then this morning. Those who trust in Jesus will be honored by God. Verses 6 to 7, for it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. Now, as we just said in verses 4 and 5, Peter had just been instructing these readers and, of course, instructing us that they are now this temple of God. Now they're this holy priesthood meant to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And so in verse 6, Peter quotes a passage from the Old Testament in order to support what he had been teaching them, particularly what he had been teaching them about the fact that Jesus Christ is this chosen and honored cornerstone of the temple. For Peter, you just kind of note from this that Holy Scripture is the authority. That's why he takes us back to Scripture to show us that God teaches this in his Word. And I love this. Even as this inspired apostle is revealing Scripture, writing down Scripture, he's also pointing us back to Scripture to show us that what he is teaching us is God's Word. It's a wonderful example for those who would teach at Christ Fellowship. It's such an important thing for us to consider, Uh, men, women, as you're teaching God's word in different spheres within the church. It's so important that we root our teaching in Scripture. Why? Because we're not particularly concerned about the opinion of men. It's one of the great problems we have in our day: is that everyone is giving us their opinion. The problem is, it's just their opinion. And the fact that 51 percent of the people in the nation have a particular opinion doesn't mean that that's the correct opinion. And you don't come to church to listen to an opinion. You're not here this morning because you want to hear the deep philosophical musings of a 41-year-old. Many of you can think more deeply than I can. You're here this morning because you want to hear from God. And that's why Peter roots what he says in God's Word. That's why our desire as a church is to root what we say in God's Word, because it doesn't matter what this Peter says. It matters what Jesus has said through his Word. So we want to hear from God, and if you're going to be a teacher in Christ's fellowship, you must root your teaching in God's Word. Now in verse 6, Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Let me read that to you, Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God said, Look, I've laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, the one who believes will be unshakable. Now, in the original context of this verse, Isaiah 28, verse 16, the prophet is telling the people of Israel that God is going to reject the rebellious leaders of the house of Israel. They, they've been rebelling against him, and he was going to establish this chosen and precious cornerstone. And the fact that he's talking about a cornerstone here, which is the first stone that's laid down, it's the most significant stone because it aligns everything else it indicates that God was going to do a new work among the people of Israel. And guided by the Holy Spirit, Peter and the apostles understood that that new work that God was going to do was going to be the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself this chosen and honored cornerstone. And they understood, as Peter says at the end of verse 6, that those who believe in the Messiah will never be put to shame, the idea never be put to shame by God, And then in the first part of verse 7, Peter makes his point. Here's the main point here. So honor will come to you who believe. So Peter is saying that those who put their trust in, believe, put their trust in this honored and chosen cornerstone, who is Jesus, well, they will receive honor from God, which is to say they will be esteemed by God and they will be vindicated by God on the day of judgment appreciated what commentator Tom Schreiner said. He put it this way. What Peter emphasized in citing Isaiah 28, 16 is that the one who believes in Christ will never be put to shame. Just as Christ is the chosen and honored one of God and was so honored at his resurrection, so too believers will be vindicated on the last day. What is true of Christ is also true of his people. They will not experience the embarrassment of judgment, but the glory of approval. And friends, that's the glory of God's approval. So let's, let me ask one question from this and then just make two quick observations. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? You see, this is kind of the crux of these verses. He's saying, the honors for whom? Honors for those who believe in this cornerstone, put their trust in this cornerstone. Well, what does it mean to believe? Well, it's not, and this is so important to understand, it's not simply talking about intellectual assent or intellectual understanding or even, yeah, I mentally agree That Jesus is who Jesus says he is, that he's the son of God, that he worked miracles, that he was the savior that God has provided for sinners. It's not merely believing that those things are true. How do we know that it's not simply understanding and believing those things are true? It's because the demons believe and they tremble. Satan believes these things about Jesus. He knows precisely who Jesus is, but he's not honored by God nor is he saved. It's more than just intellectual belief. When Peter speaks of believing in verse 7, he's talking about a trusting in Jesus. He's talking about a, a belief that looks like depending upon Jesus. Those who will receive honor from God are those who know that Jesus is the Savior. Intellectual is important. You have to have that, but they also depend. And that's the faith that you're depending on Him to save your never-dying soul. And those are the stakes of this verse. The stakes of this verse is not simply being right or wrong about who Jesus is. The Bible teaches that a day is coming when we're all going to stand before Jesus, who is the King, and He's going to pass judgment on our lives, and it is those who have trusted in His perfect life who are going to receive honor on that day for trusting in the only Savior that God has provided for sinners. Those who believe in Jesus are those who have received by faith the good news about Jesus. What's the good news? Well, it's the proclamation of what God has done through Christ to save sinners like you and me. Yeah, the Bible teaches that God is a good and holy God. He had no need to create. He wasn't lonely. He didn't lack anything, but in an overflow of love and a demonstration of his glory, he created all that exists. He created the first man, Adam and Eve placed them in a perfect garden and told them that they were to to live and enjoy this garden and work it and make it better, and they were supposed to live under his good and kind rule. They, in some ways, were to be kind of vice regents under him, making creation even better because they were made in his image. But Adam and Eve turned away from God, and instead of living for him, they decided that they wanted to live for themselves. So they were willing to disobey his command, the one command that he gave them, to show that they were going to live for themselves, and we send in them. And because we've come from them, friends, all of us have followed suit. That's how we were born. We were born feeling like it's very normal for us to go our own way. It's very important for me to figure things out on my own, make my own decisions, and go where I want to go, and live the way I want to live. And we start that very, very early. If you have ever had children, you know that we start that process of living the way we want to live, very very early at at the heart what we're talking about is rebellion against God because God is the king and we're not and we've all rebelled against God countless ways from lying from stealing from malicious thoughts towards others from bitterness it just there's so many ways that we have gone against God's good commands and did you notice that all of his commands are for our good which of God's commands were intended to harm us they're all, it's all God saying, this is the way to be blessed, walk in blessing. But in our foolish blindness, we walk outside of those commands and we try to make things better on our own and we mess up. And every single one of us in this room have messed up and we know we have in very deep and profound ways. And the Bible says that God is holy. We're not holy. So there's no way we can make up for it. There's no way, friend, you can be good enough for God to make it to heaven. That's not what Christianity teaches So many people think that. They think that, well, Christianity teaches you need to read the Bible and you need to believe that Jesus is God and you need to come to church and you need to be a nice christian person. That's not what we teach. That's religion. That's trying to do something that will make God like you. Friends, we don't teach that. We teach this. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God came into this world to do what we could not do. He came into this world specifically. The Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to live a perfect life always loving his father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, always loving his neighbor as himself, but then with a mission. The mission was to lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for broken people like us. On the cross, he borne himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead, demonstrating God, demonstrating that here is this chosen and honored cornerstone, this living stone as we saw last week. This is the one who saves. Put your trust in him. And that's the message of Christianity. It's not go clean yourself up and be more Christian-y and do more religious things and God will like you. No, it's this. God loves you. He's provided the Savior. Don't spurn his love, but embrace his love by turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus and do it today. Don't wait. You see, salvation is a free gift that's offered to all who will. And here's this amazing truth that you see in verse 6 and 7. is not only do we receive forgiveness and a reconciled relationship with God, not only are we adopted as the sons and daughters of God, but actually God is going to one day honor us. Honor us for this work of grace that he's done in our lives. There's no better news. So, friend, the question is, have you believed in Jesus? I'm not asking if you intellectually think that Jesus is God. I'm not actually thinking or asking, do you intellectually think Jesus performed miracles? I'm not asking those things. I'm asking, are you trusting in Christ completely, depending upon him completely to save your never-dying soul because you have one, and it's worth more than money, and it's worth more than success in this life, and it's worth more than pleasure, And Jesus says, what will it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? And we're saying there's a way for you to be saved, to be reconciled to God. And it is this good news. So trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him and you'll be saved. We'd encourage you to do that today. If you have honest questions about those, we have no greater desire than to talk with you. People have questions about this. That's a good thing. Press into those questions. Read the Bible for yourself. Don't just listen to what a college professor tells you about the Bible or what a pastor tells you about the Bible. Read the Bible for yourself. Dive in. Love your soul in that way. Pray and ask God to show you the truth about Jesus. And God is good, and he'll do it. Now, two observations before we move on. First observation, in Jesus we receive love, acceptance, and honor from God. Again, if you don't understand the gospel, you'll think that Christianity is about what you need to do in order to make God like you. But if you understand Christianity, you'll understand that the gospel is that we get love and honor and acceptance from God as a free gift that's given to us because we are in Jesus Christ, because we are trusting in Jesus Christ and in him alone. We see this so clearly in verse 7. What do we have to do to receive honor from God? What do we have to do? Do we have to move mountains with our faith? Do we have to do great acts of charity throughout our lives? Do we need to know the deep secrets of the Bible? No. What do we have to do? Like a child, we have to receive the free gift of salvation that's offered to us in Christ freely given to us it's a free gift we can't earn it but then look look at what we receive in salvation what is it that jesus offers us this wonderful free gift in salvation we receive infinite love god the father loves us how much does he love us the bible teaches that god the father now loves his children his sons and daughters with the very same love he has for his son the lord jesus christ that is mind-blowing It's absolutely mind-blowing. It's infinite, it's perfect, it's complete, and God will love us for all eternity with no variation. You see, it's not about our performance, is it? It's actually about Christ's performance, and because we are in Christ, there's no variation for the love of God. He's going to be at work in us as his sons and daughters, and he's going to love us perfectly forever. The Lord Jesus himself prayed that we would receive this great love. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed this way, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you. And they have known that you sent me, speaking of the disciples. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. This perfect love of the Father given to all who are in Christ. In salvation, we receive infinite acceptance. Some brothers and I met together this past Thursday and just kind of meditated from a book about the reality that so many Christians just kind of go through their Christian life with this low-grade sense that God is dissatisfied with them. That God is just up in heaven and he's just kind of putting up with them. He's a little disappointed in the bargain. He thought he was getting a better bargain, but now things haven't turned out the way that he was expecting. And we think, well, that's funny, but then isn't it true that we feel that way? Isn't it true that we often feel that way? But the reality is it's not true. You see, the the Bible doesn't picture God's relationship with his children like that. I love what it says in Zephaniah 3.17, that God rejoices over us with singing. Just think about the God of the universe rejoicing over his sons and daughters with singing. That is not a picture of disappointment. It's a picture of delight. Because God knows what he's doing. He knows who he's making us to be. He knows who we will be for all eternity when He is done with this work of grace that He's begun with us in Christ. He's going to complete the work. So we don't have to be fearful. We can be trusting and we can continue to press on in this relationship with Him. Why? Because we have this rock-solid acceptance that frees us to live for Him. And then everlasting honor. That's really the particular focus in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Everlasting honor. Notice in verse 6, He refers to Jesus as the chosen and honored cornerstone. And then in verse 7, he talks about honor. It's the same root word will come to all who believe in Jesus. So, So Christ has been honored by the Father, and in the same way, all those who are in Christ will be honored. It's the same idea. How good is the gospel? Why not embrace the gospel today? Why continue to like, Try to find life in this world when you can't, and you're just getting older, and you're going to die. Why not find life in Jesus today? It's offered to you freely. You don't have to wait. Put your trust in Christ today and be saved. The gospel is such good news. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege for us to be proclaiming the gospel. Satan doesn't want us to do that, does he? He intimidates us and keeps us from sharing the gospel. Why? Because it's the message that gives salvation. It's a message that gives eternal life. But then there's something else I want us to see. As Christians, our identity is not determined by what our surrounding culture thinks of us, but by what God thinks of us. So at the beginning of the sermon, we talked about this reality that we are increasingly living in a shame culture where the issue is not whether or not you're right or wrong about a particular topic, but about whether or not you will toe the line on the culturally approved message. You might even call it dogma. Will you toe the line on the culturally approved dogma or not? Well, if we refuse to toe the line on the culturally approved dogma, we will be shamed. We will be shamed for holding to a biblical sexual morality. We will be called bigots and we will be called intolerant. We We'll have people that will try to say that we are hateful and that will narrow. In short, they'll say that we are shameful. That's true. And when that happens, what? It will hurt. Right? That will hurt. But ultimately, the Bible teaches it doesn't matter what our culture may think of us because the only one whose opinion really matters has already spoken. And what does he said? Well, in this passage, he says that those who have put their trust in Christ are honored of God. And we'll be honored. So, friends, the message is it's worth it. It's worth it to endure shame and being vilified. And answering that shame, how? With hate? No. With insults when we're insulted? Do we insult in return? No, that's not what the Lord Jesus did. We respond with love and prayer and deep compassion, because but for the grace of God go we. We are no different. We are just as in need of the grace of God as they are. And praise God, he has met us in Christ. And you know what they need? They need Jesus. They're like hungry people that are trying to satisfy their hunger with gold. It's a problem. Gold doesn't satisfy a hungry person. Nor does believing particular dogmas or achieving particular things satisfy your soul, friend, because you were made for God. And nothing but God is going to satisfy your soul. You'll never have enough in this life. What matters is to know that God has loved us because of Jesus. What matters is to know that God has accepted us because of Jesus. What matters is to know that God has honored us and will honor us because of Jesus. And now we can press on. Now we can continue to follow him. That's the... First thing we see, we see that those who trust in Jesus will be honored. But Now, there's a second point, and it's, it's, a, it's a stark contrast, right? The second point, those who reject Jesus will face God's judgment. That's what you see in the second part of verse 7 to verse 8. So look in your copy of God's Word. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the Word They were destined for this. So here's this stark contrast. You have those who are putting their trust in Jesus. God says that they will be honored. But for those who disbelieve, for those who reject Christ, well, they're going to stumble. And it's a word that speaks of falling into God's judgment for their rejection of the only Savior that God has provided for sinners. To make his point, Peter again quotes from the Old Testament. In verse 7, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, which Rob Smith read for us earlier in the service. This is what that verse says, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, we talked about this verse last week as well, and we talked about the fact that here's a builder, there's a, a picture here in this verse of two kinds of Builders. There were the religious leaders of Israel. They were building something. They were building a works righteousness Judaism. They were building a a religion that would let them work their way to be approving to God, to be approved by God. And so they looked at this stone, which is Jesus, and they said, no, this stone is trash, and they throw it aside. They hung him on a cross. But then God the Father takes that very stone and shows that he has a completely different perspective. He takes Jesus and makes him the cornerstone of his plan. You see, you don't understand the Bible if you only start you know, reading about Jesus. You have to understand that there's a plan from Genesis to Revelation, and Jesus is at the center of it, and it's only as you understand God's plan that you understand the fullness of who Jesus is. Well, at the very center of God's plan is Jesus. He is the cornerstone of this new building, this new temple that God is building, and he demonstrates that Jesus is the cornerstone. How? By raising him from the dead, exalting him to the highest place of heaven. And then in the first part of verse 8, Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, which says this He will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. So here in the context in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, the prophet Isaiah has pictured the Lord, it's Jehovah, it's Yahweh, and, and he's a sanctuary for those who trust in him. But he also becomes this stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over for the disobedient among the people of Israel. But again, notice what Peter does. He takes what's written about Jehovah, Yahweh, and he directly applies it to Jesus. Now let that sit on your mind for a second because Peter walked with Jesus. Let me assure you, if you lived with me for three years, you would not assume that I am the living God. But Peter has no problem saying that what is true of Yahweh in the Old Testament, well, this is Jesus. This is spoken of Jesus. Why? Because God is one, and and Peter understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And so you see the pictures. Not only did the, the leaders reject the stone, but they then stumbled over the stone to their own loss, and they fall into judgment. And here the thing, it's the thing, it was no accident. Peter tells us in the second part of verse 8 that this was willful disobedience. Peter says they stumbled because they disobeyed the word. What's the word? It's the gospel of Jesus. They disobeyed that. They did not repent and believe in Jesus. They refused to believe in him, and instead of obeying the word, they disobeyed the word. And everyone who rejects Jesus does the same thing. They disobey the word. You see, the gospel is not just good advice. It's a command from a king, from the king of kings. And he says, repent and believe. Repent and find life in me. It's no accident. They rejected Jesus. But then, then at the end of verse 8, Peter lets us know that even this is under God's sovereignty. Peter says, they were destined for this. The word destined there means appointed. And appointed by whom? Well, it's a divine passive. It's appointed by God. God himself was part of God's sovereign plan that people would reject Jesus, stumbling over him as it were, and face God's judgment for their sin. Now, there is so much to say here, but let me make two observations. One's an easier observation, and then one's a harder one. The easier observation is that Jesus divides all humanity into two groups. Those who will be honored and those who will be dishonored. This really, that's the heart of this passage. That's what this passage is teaching us. That Jesus is dividing all humanity into two groups. On the day of judgment, there will be two groups of people. One group will enter into everlasting honor. Why? Because they trusted in Jesus. The other group will enter into everlasting shame and judgment. Why? Why? because they rejected Jesus. They rejected God's purposes for them in Jesus. Like the religious and political leaders of first century Israel, they did not want to live for Jesus. They wanted to live for themselves and their plans and their agendas. And so they stumble and they fall. I mean, just think think about what Josiah read for us earlier from Matthew chapter 7. Is there anything more dramatic? Than this man standing before this vast multitude and saying, I am a foundation stone, and if you build your life on me, you will be able to weather the coming judgment of God. But if you don't build your life on me, you're going to fall and collapse and be destroyed completely. Again, I can't make that claim, but Jesus can. Why? Because he's God, because he's the judge. Are pluralistic, believe what you will age, as long as it works for you, that's great, just don't tell me anything, doesn't like this. This is not something that we like in our culture. The good news is, this is something that fallen people have never liked. So we don't face any challenges that our brothers and sisters from generations before us haven't faced before. We have this wonderful message that the King of Kings offers free salvation to all who will receive it, and it is our duty, responsibility, and joy to proclaim this, that there's a way to be honored by God, and it's by trusting in Jesus. The Bible teaches that those who believe in Jesus will be honored. Those who reject Jesus, they will face God's judgment. One commentator put it this way, Jesus is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. On the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. That's the easier observation, but there's a harder observation. Our God is sovereign over all things, including the willful sin of those who reject Jesus. And to put it simply, what I mean is that the end of verse 8 means what it says. So when it says, they were destined for this, he means that God, the God who ordains all things after the counsel of his will, as you read in Ephesians 1, verse 11, has also ordained the sin of those who stumble by rejecting Jesus. Now, we need to unpack that, because I'm sure it raises a host of questions. What's Peter saying here? One of the glories of expositional preaching is that you preach through the entire uh, counsel of God's Word. One of the challenges of expositional preaching is you don't get to pick and choose what you preach about. You get to preach the whole counsel of God. So let me try to provide some clarity by making five uh, biblical statements about this interplay, about how we can understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and the sin of individuals. How do those relate together? I'm going to use the word ordain, but when you hear me say ordain, what I mean is that God sovereignly determines what will happen. If you're not used to that word ordain, you might be confused. Well, what does that mean? I mean that God sovereignly determines what's going to happen. And the first statement is this. First, God ordains the sinful actions of people. Now, the Bible does not explain how God does this, but the Bible is very clear that God does this. He has ordained from eternity past even the freely chosen sinful actions of men and women. And one of the clearest places to see this is in Acts chapter 4. I'd invite you to take your Bible and look at Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 28 with me. And this is a prayer of the apostles. Now, the apostles, they had just been threatened. They said, don't preach about Jesus anymore. They'd just been beaten. Now, don't talk about him anymore. And now, this is how they pray when they go back and gather with the other apostles. It's a wonderful prayer. I'd encourage you to read the whole part. We're just going to read for our purposes, verses 24 to 28. This is how they prayed. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father, David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, Assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Why did they gather? To freely do, to freely choose to do precisely what God had sovereignly determined what would happen. There's a mysterious interplay here. Tom Schreiner again says the worldview of scriptures is that God is sovereignly in control of all things. From the decisions made by kings to the throw of the dice, even the cruelest and most vicious act in history, the execution of Jesus of Nazareth was predestined by God. There's a second statement we should make. God ordains the sinful actions of people, but God is not the source of sin nor is his ordination of those sinful actions of people in itself sinful. How do we know that? We know that because God is absolutely holy, and the Bible is express that God cannot do wrong. He cannot do wrong. So this is how the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, describes God. He says, you are who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And then in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, this is how Paul introduces his letter. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. The Bible reveals God to be pure light, and in him is no darkness at all. All that he does is just and right and true. And even his ordination, even his um, determination of what would happen in the future, which involves the freely chosen sin of others, is not sinful. God has a plan, but it is mysterious. Third, God's sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility. The fact that God ordains all things, including sin, doesn't mean that people are not responsible for their actions. Why? Because men and women are not robots. And we operate according to our desire. Actually, we are designed by God to do precisely what we think will make us most happy at any given moment. That's the core motivation of every action we ever make. We're doing it because we think it's going to make us, in the short term or the long term... Most happy. Men and women are not robots, nor are they forced by God to sin. Instead, as you see in the case of Herod and Pontius Pilate, in the death of Jesus, people freely choose to do what God has sovereignly ordained beforehand will come to pass. In other words, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and men and women are completely responsible. And there's a mystery there. And there's a tension there. And the Bible never resolves the tension. Here's a fourth statement. God actively chooses some for salvation. The Bible calls them his elect, but he passes over others who freely choose the sin that leads to their damnation. Nowhere in the Bible do you see God actively choosing to damn people to hell. Instead, the Bible pictures God as rejoicing over those who turn from their sin and trust in him, and weeping over those who will not. Why did Jesus weep outside of Jerusalem? Because they did not know the time of God's visitation. Because they went on in their rejection of him. Here's grieved by it. Wayne Grudem is helpful. He says, in the Bible, God is viewed as actively choosing uh, us for salvation and doing so with delight. But reprobation, which he defines as the passing over of those who are not chosen and justly leaving them in their rebellion, is viewed as as something which brings God sorrow, not delight, and in which the blame is always put on the men who rebel and not on God. So what is God's heart in this? Listen to God's heart in Ezekiel 18, verse 23. This is what God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives. Again, there's mystery here. A fifth thing we should say, because the Bible does not reveal how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are reconciled, Christians should avoid unhelpful speculation. That doesn't mean we shouldn't look at the Bible and study it as deeply as we can We should look at the Bible, and we should study it as deeply as we can, but we should remember Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, and the things that are revealed are for us and our children that we may do them. God has capacities that are higher than our capacities. It should not surprise us that things make perfect sense to Him that do not make perfect sense to us. So, After the service this morning, many of you could come up and you could ask me difficult questions about this, and I'd have to look at you lovingly and say, I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't, it doesn't tell us. I invite you to come and ask questions. Don't just ask questions to me, ask hard questions to other people too. They'll want to take us, you know, take a stab at it as well. Um, But there are things that the Bible simply hasn't told us. And my guess is there are things that we simply at this point do not have the capacity to understand. So what's the responsibility for us? The responsibility for us is like children to humble ourselves before the majesty of God. And the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and that men and women are responsible. The Bible teaches both clearly, so by faith we humbly embrace both and we leave the reconciliation to God Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciled God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He wisely answered this way, I never try to reconcile friends. And that's a good answer. And what it means is the Bible teaches both, and we don't understand exactly how it all works out, but we humble ourselves before the majesty of God, we proclaim that He is true, and we trust Him. And we teach what the Bible says. Well, looking at these verses, verses 6 to 8, we've seen another aspect of Christian identity. The world may scorn us and call us shameful for not going along with its idolatry and immoral lust. I think we can expect that that will increase. But God, listen, speaks a better word. And his word is the one that matters. God says that in Christ we are honored and we will be honored forever and ever because we are in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that is who we are. And may God be praised for all of it. And let's pray.